There's something beautiful about hearing your name, isn't there? Something almost magical, powerful about being in a crowd and someone yells out, hey Roy, Heather, hey Mario, it's been a while. Jonathan over here, Jennifer, I missed you. And you hear your name and you turn around and you see a smile. Like, what does that do in your soul when you experience that? For me, there's like a spark that I can be overwhelmed by the burdens of life. I can feel discouraged. And when someone says that with a smile on their face and I turn around and see someone that I haven't been with in a while, there is a spark. It warms my soul and it says to me, perhaps I'd be welcome here. Maybe you've had that experience here at this church that you're in the lobby way or over by the cafe and somebody called your name and you said to yourself, wow, perhaps I'd be welcome here. Perhaps I matter here. If I was to describe the feeling that I get in those instances from someone that I didn't expect to hear from in a single word, it would be joy. Are you with me? There's a sense of joy that comes upon us when we hear our name from someone who cares about us. I believe that whether you're a Christian who's just longing for deeper wisdom, greater discernment, a greater leading from God, or you're a spiritual seeker here today who's curious about whether prayer matters at all, or someone just drug you to church this morning and you're not sure what this whole Christianity thing is all about, wherever you are, my guess is you would like to know that God knows you by name. You'd like to know that God cares about you personally and individually, and perhaps that he would want an interactive, personal relationship with you. Now, I get that uh, for some people, all talk of personal relationship with God just sounds silly. There's many people, there's many men that I've talked to over the years, particularly like, eh, I don't know about that whole personal relationship thing. I, I believe in certain truths about Christianity, and that's good. But personal relationship is what we are invited to. I think of the comedian Lily Tomlin, who once quipped, Uh, Why is it that when we talk to God, we're said to be praying, but when people say that God talks to them, we say they're schizophrenic? Okay, so her assumption is that neither really happen. There is no real conversational relationship with God. There is no personal relationship with God. And there, there are many people outside the church, and I've been surprised inside the church as well over the decades that I've been doing this, who actually believe that also, that there is no real conversational relationship with God to be had. My assumption, as I noted last Sunday, is that God can indeed whisper to us, and we can hear, we can sense a nudging or a prompting or a leading, perhaps not an audible voice, perhaps, but a a nudging and a leading from God as we interact with him and then we learn to hear from him as well. We talked about Elijah, the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19. 
And uh, this is kind of part two of a two-week mini-series in John chapter 10, if you want to turn there. But we also talked last week about Elijah in 1 Kings 19. And uh, God appears to Elijah, and you'll remember that he didn't appear in the spectacular, did he? Like, it wasn't in the earthquake, it wasn't in the fire, it wasn't in the tornado. Rather, after the fire came a... Yeah. Silence. Maybe a whisper. Many Hebrew scholars think the best definition of that word is silence. After that came silence. And Elijah knew he was in the presence of God, and so he covers his face with a cloak. He recognizes he's in the presence of holiness. Elijah heard it. He heard the silence. That's interesting, isn't it? He heard the silence. Can you hear silence? Actually, I think we can. Like, our, our lives are so busy. They're so noisy that if we get some silence, there's some really powerful things, though, that can happen in there. And I, I believe that a big part of the abundant life that Jesus offers to us, as he's been talking about here in John chapter 10, is that we could receive a nudging from God's Spirit that leads us in a particular direction as he calls us by name. And once again, as I've noted before, I've never heard an audible voice from God. In case you're wondering, that has not been my experience. Other people have told me they have had that, that experience. Wonderful, I don't dismiss that. I believe God could do that. That simply has not been my experience. But what has been my experience is some guidance and a leading and a prompting to do this or to do that as I sit quietly and wait on the Lord. This is the work of the good shepherd who actually cares for our souls. Last week, our main idea was this. The good shepherd wants to communicate specifically with each of his sheep, but his voice tends to be more of a whisper or, again, even silence. Let me just take a moment and review some of the key passages from last Sunday as we set up the, this week two of this message on hearing the good shepherd's voice. Once again, John chapter 10 is where we are We'll review a few verses. The first one is John 10, verse 3 and 4. These are the unblushing words of Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord. He says, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him. That's for the good shepherd, Jesus. The gatekeeper is God the Father. The shepherd is Jesus. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. He names them. He loves them. He knows them by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Down to verse 9, Jesus says this, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and you may have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Up on the screen here, you see this painting of a gate. You see that? 
That's a painting from someone in our church, and it's out in the lobby way as well. There's another one that's representative of the light, I am the light. And you think of all the I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Part of what we're doing in this series is artists from our church have painted portraits to represent each of the I am statements. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am living water, I am bread, all, I'm the resurrection. All of those words of Jesus, the great I am statements of Jesus are, are starting to be represented around this building in art form. Yeah, you might take a look at those. He is the gate and he is the good shepherd, he says. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And once again, this is kind of the seed of the abundant life that God would provide to us. These two things that we noted last week, a personal knowledge that the good shepherd chooses to lay down his life for us, his sheep. That he chooses to do so, and then he takes it back up again, onto the cross, down to the grave, back up, resurrected again, such that we would be validated in our belief in our good trust in Jesus. He's our good shepherd. And we have abundant life, but because of these two realities, he sacrificed his all for us to give us real and abundant life today, and he whispers to us still today in order to lead us to green pastures. This is our good God. He wants for us life and life to the fullest. Now, Jesus being as clear and as explicit as he can in these previous chapters about his identity. People have been asking, who are you, Jesus? And you might remember in the previous chapter, Jesus heals a blind man, and that blind man falls to his knees, and he worships, worships him as God. In previous chapters before that, he healed a paralyzed man. He's welcoming worship from people of every tribe and tongue and nation, Jews and Gentiles together. All of that is happening, and yet even so, people are still mistaking who Jesus is, not really understanding his identity. And so he's going to make it really, really clear to them in, his passage, in this passage today, starting at verse 22. People are still wondering, and here's Jesus' response. Chapter 10, verse 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, would you please tell us plainly? Jesus answered, I tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And he can't be much more explicit than that, can he? He says, I and the Father are one. And I have come to give you abundant life. I delight to give abundant life. Here I am. You want to know what the Father is like? You look no further than me, Jesus is saying. 
If you want to know what God is like, you look at the Son of God who is God in flesh, and Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one. I reveal to you the radiant, beautiful, loving, joyous character of God. And if you're genuinely one of the good shepherd's sheep, the good news in this passage is he will hold on to you. Did you hear it? Did you hear it? Like the really good news in this passage is if you're genuinely one of the good shepherd's sheep, he's going to hold you. Inasmuch as a toddler holds on to a teddy bear with two hands. So also what this says, verse 28, is the father holds on to you with one hand. And verse 29 says the son holds on to you with the other hand. With two hands, the Father and the Son say, I am holding on to you. I will not let the enemy of your soul snatch you out of my hand. I will not allow other circumstances in this life to snatch you from my hand. God is strong for us when we are weak. And so we will indeed have valleys in our spiritual life. We'll have great valleys emotionally. We'll have times when we do not feel close to God, and that's okay. Can we say that together? That's okay. We'll have valleys and that's okay. We will have valleys in our spiritual life. It doesn't mean that God is letting you go. Don't be so dictated by your emotions to believe that God is letting you go when you go through emotional or spiritual valleys. That's coming to all of us. What it's saying is if you've genuinely bowed your knee to Jesus Christ as Lord, Yes, is the one who saves you from your sin, but also is Lord over heaven and earth and Lord over your life, such that you say, you have control over me, God. I do not have control over me. I do not give direction to my life. You give direction to my life. I don't gain my own marching orders. You give my marching orders, and I follow you. And if you've actually done that, and you mean it from the heart, you mean it in your mind, then you can have confidence whatever you're going through today. That you may be in a deep valley, but right now you can know that God is holding on to you with two hands. Now, there's other people who come into the church and they treat Jesus like fire insurance. And if you treat Jesus like fire insurance, you don't have fire insurance. Mm. Did you hear that? Mm, did you hear that? Is there anyone with me here today? If you treat Jesus as fire insurance, you don't have fire insurance. Because you don't trust in fire insurance. You don't surrender to fire insurance. And that's the heart of the matter. It's not about getting a ticket to heaven. It's about the word surrender. Have I bowed my knee to God? And if you bowed your knee to God in a genuine manner, you truly give God your heart, you say, I surrender my all to you, you are Lord and I am not, then you can be very confident that with two hands, God is holding on to you through the valleys and nothing will snatch you out of his hand. Thanks be to God. Now, I want to get really practical here for the remainder of our time because Justine took most of my time. (laughs) Just kidding, Justine. It was worth every moment, but I want to get real practical here and return. On staff, you got to know, we laugh together, okay? They, they, they laugh at my expense a lot. Um, last week, what well, we talked about a few different practical ways that we can prepare ourselves to hear from God. 
And let me just review those and give you a few more key ingredients here, though, this morning. Uh, the practical ways, though, that we noted last week is we want to listen for the life-giving voice. There is another voice, though, that's noted in the passage, though, that we just looked at, the voice of the thief. And interestingly to, to me, many Christians know that voice better than they know the life-giving voice. It, it's, it's very interesting. You, you ask Christians, how do you know when the enemy is talking to you? They'll tell you. But you ask, how do you know the Father is talking to you? Oftentimes they can't tell you. We need to get used to listening to the Father's voice. Get used to listening to Jesus' voice. It's the life-giving voice. We want to keep pen and journal hand, handy. And we want to trust that God will talk to us about us. He's not mostly going to give me a word to give to you. He's not mostly going to give me a word to give to my wife. Or Susie a word to give to me. No, he's mostly going to speak to us about us because he's a gentleman. He doesn't need to gossip. Okay, five words and ingredients, if you will, on your outline today on developing a more abundant personal relationship with God. The first one is this, honesty. If you want to have a more abundant personal relationship with God, it really begins with honesty. Growing in candid, honest prayers before God. Here's my definition of prayer. You see up on the outline, the prayer is the very real you having a real conversation with a very real God. You bring your full self to the table, and you know that God is real. You trust that as you come to him in prayer, and you have a real conversation with him, which includes confessing my sins, praising him for who he is, giving thanks to him for who he is, crying out to him, listening to him, maybe crying out to him again. All of those kinds of things go on in real conversational relationship with God. Real prayer includes all of those kinds of things. Elijah's personal relationship included very honest prayers. 1 Kings 19.10 says this, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. And he says this to God, The Israelites have rejected your covenant, God. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Can you talk to God like that? Like Elijah, if you read 1 Kings 19 and encourage you to do so, he's really honest to God. And you read the Psalms, you see all of these lamentations. In fact, about 35% of the Psalms are what you call lamentations, which are cries to God that things are not right. Things are not right in my life. Things are not life right in our nation, in our world. Things are not right, and I'm crying out to you, God. This is a really great way to pray. Lament is a prayer in the midst of your pain that leads you to trust God more. And you look at this prayer, though, that we just put up on the screen. Well, let's put it up there again. Elijah is really kind of ticked off. He says, I'm alone. I'm the only one that's still pursuing you. It's like I'm in the temple, and I'm looking around, and everybody's just playing church. They ain't real about it. That, that's what he's saying. Now, if you go on in the chapter, you realize that he was wrong. And God corrects him and says, no, you're wrong. You don't see the full heart. You don't really know what's going on, Elijah. I have 5,000 others that I have preserved whose knees are bowed to me as well. But the point for right now is Elijah bows before God in bare naked honesty. And God is so good to hold us in that. Prayer is the real you having a real conversation with a real God, being very honest about it.
And then we want to have a consistent place that we would connect with God. We start off with honesty, and then I think it's really helpful to have a consistent place or two that you regularly go to where you just kind of settle in to your connection with God. There might be wonderful places that you travel to, and that's great, but on a daily basis, you need some kind of place that you settle into connection with God. Again, Elijah, uh, for his, it seemed to be the mountain, at least in this instance, 1 Kings 19.11, the Lord said to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And so he goes to his place, this mountain, and he senses God through the silence. He senses God through a whisper while he's in the wilderness. Talked about that a little bit last week, that at times we just need to get away to the wilderness, get away to a lake to be able to hear from God for a longer period of, God, a longer period of time. Excuse me. And the way God frequently speaks to us, again, is through this whisper or through a silence in which we get this little nudging. Why does God speak to us through a whisper? I think it's this. When someone speaks to you in a whisper, you lean into them. You get closer to them. A whisper is a way that you speak to someone that you love at times. Lovers speak to each other in a whisper. Could it be that God wants us to lean in, eliminate the noise of all the distractions, to be able to hear from him? That we would draw near to God and we would find that he is faithful to draw near to us? Whisper is intimate language, which is what God invites us to. And you can get into that through a place, a consistent place that you would go and meet with God. Again, it could be a mountain, it could be a lake, it could be a walk around your block. I have a pastor friend here in this town that walks in Kearney Cemetery every single morning. That seems a little bit weird to me. But he likes to go there, and he gets into a place of prayer. While he's there, he's reminded of spiritual realities while he's in the cemetery, and that's part of his daily meditation time of meeting with God. It's great. You, you figure it out, what works for you, that you have some kind of place that you consistently, if not every day, several days a week, go and you connect with God. This, of course, is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, go into your prayer closet and pray to the Father who sees what's done in secret, and the Father that sees what's done in secret will reward you in secret. You go and you pray in secret. You get a prayer closet of some kind, a war room of some kind in your house where you go to work with the Lord on your requests, whatever they might be. As noted before, we don't have a prayer closet at our house, but what we do have is a prayer chair. This is our prayer chair at our house, and we go to this prayer chair regularly, and the boys know that when we're in that prayer chair, it's not really time to play. They know that that's not really the time to bring us a bunch of requests because we are in a meeting, a really important meeting that's not going to be interrupted. Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him. Where do you go to meet in the presence of the Lord? Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him. 
In addition to a daily place, having some kind of time is critical. In general, for me, the morning time is my daily time to consistently meet with God. Uh, There's different times that work for different personalities, and that's fine. You don't have to feel guilty if you're not a morning person. There's times that I'm not a morning person either, and so I switch it, and I do something at noontime, or do something in the evening. That's okay. But the key is to have a consistent time, 15, 20, 30 minutes a day, in which you consistently make time to meet with God, that we still the noise of life to consistently be with him, in order we would say no to other things and say yes to God. Uh, There's... uh, a gentleman who I've gotten the, the pleasure of knowing, he, is a, a, he was a seminary president and he was one of my professors in seminary as well by the name of Gordon McDonald. He's a very, very busy man, but this is how he talks about his daily devotional time and the priority of having a consistent time even on his schedule. Uh, he says in his book, Ordering Your Private World, the other day a man caught up with me and asked if we could have an early morning breakfast on a certain day. How early, I asked him. You're an early riser, he said. Why not six? I looked at my calendar and said, I'm sorry, I've already got a commitment for that hour. How about seven? He agreed on seven rather quickly, but looked quite surprised that my calendar might reflect plans for that early in the morning. I did have a commitment for six that morning. In fact, it started earlier than that. It was a commitment to God. He was the first on the calendar that day where he belongs every day. And it is not the sort of commitment that one compromises, not if one wants to seize time and keep it under control. It is the start of an organized day, an organized life, an organized private world. Hmm. If you want to have a well-ordered world, if you want to have well-ordered emotions, If you want to have a well-ordered spiritual life in which there is the possibility of connecting deeply with God, consistency of time and place are critical ingredients. Otherwise, what will inevitably happen to us is the noise of the world will yell at us, will it not? And as the noise of the world yells at us, it will direct us. We'll be directed either by our still quiet meeting time and place with God, or we'll be directed by the noise of the world. This is how I do it. The fourth word on your outline is Bible. And what I do is I go to my prayer chair early in the morning, and I get my Bible out, and I generally begin with Five deep breaths just to quiet my soul. Lately, it's been more like three minutes of dead silence. And just say, God, how do you want to speak? And I might light a candle to remind myself that Jesus is the light of the world and he intends to warm my life. And I might take a short passage of scripture. The goal here is not so much quantity as it is quality. And reading through the Bible in a year is a great thing, but if it becomes a checklist, it's no longer a great thing. Amen? The goal here is quantity, not, is quality, sorry. Quality, not quantity. And so I might have a single psalm that I'm going to meditate on, 
or a favorite passage from the Gospels that we've been studying in John, or Romans 8, or Philippians 4, any number of favorite passages that I just sit on and ask that God would calm my heart. And then I remind myself of uh, Psalm 4610, be still and know that God is God. Be still and know that God has it. Harpu, God's got it under control. I can trust myself to him. He is in control, I am not. And I, I go through that for five, 10 minutes, and then I might start confessing my sins. And then I go on to praising God that he has forgiven me of my sins. And praising God for who he is. And there might be something in my reading plan that I'll read a chapter or two, but again, the goal is to be more like Mary. Remember, Mary gets the word of the Lord, and she pondered these things in her heart. She treasured these things in her heart. The goal is to meet with God more than it is just to get a reading done and check that off and move on to something else in your life. And sometimes I'm not moved emotionally at all, and that's just fine. Most of the times you won't be moved emotionally at all, and that's fine. You're not waiting for a, a, a lightning bolt every time you sit in your prayer chair. Rather, you're saying, word of God, speak. I open up your word, and I would invite you to give a little whisper of something to me today. Is there something that you want to tell me today about me? Is there an area that I am missing the mark, that there's a change that needs to happen? I invite you to whisper to me in this place. And again, I have my journal next to me, and if there's something that comes up, I, I write that down. And then eventually, you know, 20 to 30 minutes later, I move on. And you get in a habit of that, and again, it just begins to order your day. These four words, honesty, place, time, Bible, and the last one that I'm always asking is about action. Is there something that you want me to do right now, dear God, that I haven't been doing? Is there something that you want me to say to someone? Is there an area that I need to change? Is there something that I need to invest in with my sons that I haven't been investing in? What is the action that you are calling me to? I love the way James puts it. He says, do not merely be a hearer of the word. Do what it says. Be a doer of the word. And so we always sit down to our conversational relationship with God, asking, God, what is it that you want to change in me? What is it that you want me to do? How do you want me to think? Is there a next step of action that you have particularly for me? And I want to encourage you to consider what Justine shared earlier that maybe for some of us, the next step of action is to be more involved even outside of these walls for the kingdom of God, to demonstrate the love of Christ, perhaps at a local school like Emerson or perhaps somewhere else in your own neighborhood as the Lord might lead, but to say, word of God, would you please speak? How can I be your representative in my world? How can I make a difference in one person's life as we move into the fall? How can I join the mission that we're on together here at Carney E. Free Church for your glory, for your renown, and for the good of those around me? These five words, honesty, place, time, Bible, and action. 
And the good shepherd, who knows you by name, can speak specifically to you. His loving whisper can be part of the seed of the abundant life that he wants for us here in the next season. Amen? Amen. As we wrap up here, what I'd like to do is ask you all to stand, and we are going to read together Psalm 23. And as you know, as I'm sure you could tell, as you listen to that language in John chapter 10, what is John, what is Jesus referencing back to? Psalm 23. Again and again, as he calls himself the good shepherd, he's saying in essence that he is the fulfillment of all that is promised there in Psalm 23. That beautiful psalm that we love so much, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And this is what he longs for, for us. Not just when we die, but here as we live, he is our good shepherd. So in the venue, and perhaps those who are watching at carneyefree.com, let's all join in reading this together. You'll see it up on the screen. I'm not sure what translation you memorized it, but we'll read it this way. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley, I will fear no evil, (laughs) for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Amen.